Hello, and welcome to Commendable Commotion, where the arts and true crime intersect. Today, I'll be talking to Robin Ramsey, who runs a very interesting publication called Lobster. Since 1983, Lobster has featured articles delving into all sorts of mysterious parapolitical subject matter. In the late 1980s, Robin gained national attention in the UK when Lobster's team became involved in a very intriguing story relating to the intelligence services, which you will hear him talk about in our interview today. During that time, Robin appeared on the prestigious talk show After Dark for a roundtable discussion on national security. A link to that programme will be in the description of this podcast, but today, years on from his memorable television appearance, Robin will tell me a bit about what the term parapolitical actually means, and he'll talk also about how he got into investigative journalism in the first place. And, of course, he'll give some excellent advice for aspiring journalists and writers along the way. So, sit back and enjoy our conversation. The first thing that I'd like to ask you, and um, it'll be interesting, how did you get into journalism? Like, you know, how did you get interested in journalism and writing? Well, writing, uh, I was a student in the early 70s, an undergraduate. Um, and I, I guess uh, I got interested in, a, the, the idea of being a writer had always been around in the back of my head, but I'd never done any. So I went to university and left university and uh, began doing little bits and pieces and had the basic experience that I'd write something, get up the next day, I'd think it was crap and throw it away. And then one day I wrote something and got up the next day and thought, that's not bad. And I thought, perhaps I can do this after all. And I actually began in 1976, I think it was, it's a long time ago. Uh, a long conspiracy theory was published by a magazine called the International Times, which the International Times was the last hangover of the underground press in, in England in the 70s, in the 60s rather. And it staggered on to 1977. And they ran this long conspiracy theory as a kind of comic. It was called The Skeleton Key to the Gemstone File. You can find it on the internet. It's now on the internet. And uh, I read this and thought, wow. It was all about Kennedy and post-war American history. And I thought, wonder what this is about. So I went back to the university library to check it. My, the rest of my buddies, who were all sitting smoking, all going, oh, far out, man. I went, far out, man. I wonder if it's true. And went to the university library. And I ended up in American history, which I'd never been, a floor in the library I'd never been on. And I began checking this, this conspiracy theories claims one by one, and they were all nonsense, right? So this, I began in this field, disproving a conspiracy theory, falsifying a conspiracy theory. And eventually I wrote a refutation of this and sent it off to International Times and they published it. And that's how I got started. Very and good. Then I then I went to the university library for, for about five years. I was standing on standing on the door, unemployed, standing on the door, went to the university library every day for about five years and educated myself properly, as opposed to being doing the, doing the degree I had done. I self-educated and have acquired a big, a big pile of knowledge, which I began to use in the early 80s. I see, I see. Okay, that's interesting. So, you know, it shows the importance of like, you know, being objective when you're researching a particular topic, you didn't just kind of run with what you read. You actually sort of, you know, gave your 
side of the perspective. Okay, that's good. That's good. Oh, no, no. I, I took on board entirely and ent entirely internalized the rationality and appropriateness of academic thinking and writing. You, if you're going to have, if you're going to make a claim, show the evidence. This is why lobsters up to, up to here in footnotes, you're going to have to show the evidence. And I was greatly influenced by uh, a man called Peter Dale Scott, an American, who wrote about the Kennedy assassination, and he was an academic, and he produced these beautiful academic footnoted, massively footnoted uh, articles and books. And I thought that's the way to do it, which is what I did. Very good. Very good. That's that's interesting. So in terms of then, you know, when you start moving into publishing Lobster uh, from that time forward, um, I believe Lobster started in 1983. Is that right? 83. Yeah. How did that come about? What made you decide to do that? Well, it came about because there was a guy in Northern Ireland called Harry Irwin. I think he's dead now. He must be dead now. And he was a Kennedy buff. And I, by reading in the library, I had sort of drifted into the Kennedy stuff. And I can't remember how I heard about Harry. And I wrote to Harry and Harry put me in touch with this other guy in England that he knew who was a Kennedy buff. And he lived in Huddersfield. That was Stephen Dorrell. So Stephen Dorrell and I began corresponding. And he, he had already self-published a little pamphlet about the fascists in Huddersfield. And I'd written a little pamphlet about, um, basically about parapolitics. And I was then working on a local radical magazine. So we knew about publication, we knew how to do it. We knew how to, you know, because in those days before computers, it was, you know, type, cut it up, stick it down, get it straight, all that stuff. You know, paste up, old fashioned. I mean, I still got my T-square hanging on the wall. And so we met and decided to do a little magazine. I've got a copy of the first issue somewhere. Nah, I can't see it. Anyway, we published a little magazine on A5, A5, this size. 150 copies. And um, for some reason, I have no idea how, I can't remember how we distributed it, who got it, but a few people bought it. So we did another one and it grew very, very slow. And at its maximum, it was, it was selling a thousand, a thousand copies. And the term that you mentioned just earlier, parapolitics and, you know, parapolitical, para for people unfamiliar with that term, because sometimes it doesn't seem to be a term that's used that often, which is kind of it's surprising. Not, it's, yeah. not used, it's not used much anymore. Um, it was Peter Dale Scott's term. Peter Dale Scott invented it in the early 70s somewhere. And, you know, I, I would now be hard pushed to, to find parapolitics. Essentially, he was interested in um, what would you describe it as? He was essentially interested in the hidden world. He took that what you saw through the mass media of politics was essentially uh, one version of it, but behind it was all the other stuff. Of course, in America, you had these huge federal bureaucracies, the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, etc., etc., et all of which, none of which got, had any of which got reported. And they had enormous power and enormous money. And he was interested in how that interacted with formal party politics, I guess. And so I took, I thought, yes, that's probably true in Britain. We've got MI5, MI6, you know. And in the late 1970s, there was hardly anybody doing this. Duncan Campbell was doing a bit at the New Statesman. I think that was about it. There was a bit in Time Out magazine. Um, and that was it, really. So we just drifted into it. And it never occurred to me I'd still be doing it 40 years later, which is an absurdity. I've spent my, most of my life doing this. Well... <laughs> Because it's such a 
term that isn't used quite often like i mean i know obviously you've touched on what it means before but just briefly for people unfamiliar with the term how would you sum it up uh concisely power politics power politics mm -hmm. the interaction between the secret agencies of the state and civil society and politics basically that i'm sure that's not what peter dill scott said in 1972 and i could google that if you were interested but i can't actually remember what peter dill scott said and, and i agree it's not a term that's used much in britain it's never caught on here and i, I noticed um donald trump started using it once used it once or twice which rather put me off it as well right right i i <laughs> didn't know that that's interesting I, I didn't know that um in terms of um you know sort of particular topics that you know back when you started lobster that you were particularly interested in and now as well what particular elements of the whole kind of parapolitical realm would particularly interest you are you equally interested in all the different aspects of it what do you think well as you can see we began uh, we began with an interest in the kennedy assassination that's the one thing we had in common and yeah. we were interested in, in northern ireland and mi5 and mi6 of course in 19 1982 when we met there was hardly anything on any of this i mean kennedy assassination yes but on british stuff there was nothing little snippets in newspapers i mean we were you know we were cutting up papers every day filing it away i've got i've got four 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 filing cabinets this room full of bits of paper hardly any of which i ever use anymore but that that's what it used to be filing cabinets no sure i'll show you sure wow filing cabinets yeah it's a it's a good collection yeah it's a room full of books that i don't read anymore and filing cabinets that i don't read anymore because these days everything anything you could want is online it is literally the case that the day i went online was the last day i went to the university at whole library i haven't been back since what year was that when did i go online i can't remember 96 7 something like that yeah a long time the, the internet's really kind of um you know democratized information and really made so many things available but still sometimes you know do you would you agree that maybe sometimes like there's some things that you just can't find on the internet obviously and you really need to you know go the extra mile that no i have not been i have not done any research in a library since i went online i can't think of at an occasion when i had to do it if i can't find it online i have to do something else and come back to it and maybe find try it from another angle maybe find it there there's almost nothing some very old stuff's not online, clearly, but there's almost nothing now that you can't find. It is a very strange world that we're living in, in that sense. I mean, this is Internet One. Internet One was a giant, a giant encyclopedia, which suddenly had all this information at your fingertips. Internet Two and Internet Three is just, you know, I don't know, I don't know who coined the phrase, weapons of mass distraction, you know. The that's a good term. I never heard that one before, surprisingly. Oh, well, I, you have to Google it. I can't remember who said it, but that's what that's what it is. Yeah. And selling selling you stupid shit, people buying stuff, shopping, shopping, shopping and entertainment, you know. Yeah. The um so you particularly mentioned interested in the JFK assassination, for example. Sure. What what drew you to that particular well, I mean it's, I know obviously beyond the fact that a president was assassinated, was there anything particular that drew you to it? I can't I mean it's difficult to know why things, I mean, why do subjects appeal to some people, not to others? I don't know why the Kennedy assassination appealed to me. I mean, I could be I could be semi-serious and say, well, at the time I was deeply involved in a needful relationship with my mother and father. Their marriage had broken up, blah, blah, blah. So maybe there was something about killing daddy. Who knows? <laughs> you know. To me, it just suddenly struck me, well, this is interesting. 
how come nobody knows about this? Because it was as soon as you look at it, it's immediately obvious the official story is nonsense. And this is a big event. This is the head of the most head of the most powerful most powerful nation in the world at the time. I mean, America dominated the world in 1963 like it hasn't done since, really. And suddenly he gets bumped off in public and no one, no one bothers. Very, very, so this is very, very striking. It's just a very striking event. It's not the question isn't really, why am I interested in it? The question really is, why is everybody else not interested in it? How can they let this? I mean, the, British, the American political system and the American, uh, American media just let it slide by. Oh, well. Nobody wants to look at it. Very, very odd. Very, very striking, too. Did you uncover or research very sort of niche aspects of it that were overlooked? No. And no, I, no, I'm a generalist. I mean, I'm I'm a journalist. I want to see the big pictures. So I'm no, I'm not. I'm not the guy to ask about the nature of the bullet. You know how many turns on. The, you know that sort of stuff. There are people like that. They're on the internet. Hundreds, a few hundred of them doing extraordinarily minute research. I mean, preposterous research. I mean, I don't care. I don't care how big the stain was on the presidential limousine floor. Some people do. I mean, I'm not going to put them down for it, but to me, it's not, not of any interest. I want to know who did it. In fact, the Kennedy assassination world has long since abandoned who did it because people study these things and people, people study a subject, they specialize and what they're looking at gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Their knowledge gets deeper and deeper, but the field shrinks. So you've got all these, so JFK world is now lots of little specialists who specialize in the bullets, the rifle, the cover-up, Tippett, Jack Ruby, you know what I mean, bits and pieces. I, nobody's actually asking, well, who did it? People really don't ask that question anymore. They're long since past that. They don't, basically, they don't think they'll ever solve it. I personally think it's been solved pretty much, but I'm a minority and the Kennedy assassination buffs ignore me. They take no notice of me. And so what was your, what's your kind of idea of then who, who did it and how was it solved or who was it? Well, I mean, this is taking me 40 years to get here. And this, what you've got is series, it's like peeling back the layers of an onion in a sense. I think what actually happened, I think I've written this in Lobster fairly recently. My view of what actually happened is the following. The, the anti-Castro division of the CIA. Kennedy was making peace with Castro on the quiet. He was making peace with Khrushchev on the quiet as well. Kennedy was trying to end the Cold War. Kennedy and Khrushchev wanted to end the Cold War, but they had to do it with large military forces behind them. They both had huge military establishments and which were making money and careers and all the rest of it on the Cold War. So they were doing it clandestinely. Kennedy and Kennedy was putting out feelers to Castro and CIA's, and CIA's Cuban division decided that they would block this. And they would block this by organizing a phony assassination attempt. They would get somebody who was publicly identified as very, very pro-Castro, Lee Harvey Oswald, one of their agents, running around, you know, you know hands off Cuba. It was off the front. They would get him, set him up as a pro-Castro figure, and then get him to fire a rifle at Kennedy. And the original plan was he would fire a rifle and not, he wasn't trying to kill him, just fire a shot. Then they would arrest him and he would die in the, in the arrest. Suddenly you would have pro-Castro activists fires at Kennedy and that would give the CIA a chance to kibosh Kennedy's peace feelers to Castro. What then happened was, and this is the bit where they informate the evidence is slight, that so elsewhere in the CIA, the news got out that this, this, this phony stunt was being attempted and people realized, ah, we can do a real assassination attempt on top of the phony one 
and it'll all be covered up because the CIA won't want the phony one revealed. So it was piggybacked. Essentially, it was piggybacked. Now, looking back on it, I wrote about this in 1984 and completely forgot about it. I was reading a version of the piggyback theory about three years ago and thought, you know, this is oddly familiar. And then I remember that, that I'd written it myself in 1984 and just forgotten about it. You know, lobsters now five million words or something. So five million words later, I'd simply forgotten that I'd written it. So I solved it in a sense in 1984, but I just forgot about it. So what's what you had? A real assassination attempt was piggybacked on a phony. So and the whole thing was covered up by the people that had to cover up the phony. So the CIA covered it all up. They had to because they were running this little, this little stunt, a little stunt. There's some, there's some decent evidence about the stunt. There's not much about the real assassination attempt because everybody's dead. I see. That's yeah. That's the difficulty when researching, you know, topics from the 20th century and you know, maybe oh, yeah. even sometimes late 20th century on occasion. But the um, so you know, speaking of the JFK assassination, you said like you know, well. How come other people weren't interested in what really happened? That kind of thing. What it kind of reminds me of, just tangentially, is the whole sort of strategy of tension that you may have mm. written about in Italy in the seventies. Have you? Did you I, write about that in Lobster at some? I, I haven't written about the strategy of tension. I've published bits and pieces about it. I've written about the strategy of tension in Britain in in the late nineteen seventies. There was a, it was one here too. It's in Lobster eighty one. If anybody wants to look at it. I saw a couple of, during lockdown, a guy got in touch with me. He lived in, I live in Hull. He lived in Scarborough, which is 40 miles away. We used to meet halfway because he refused to use a keyboard. He wouldn't text me. He refused or, or email me. We had to do it in person. And he was part of what was essentially a Saturday of tension in, uh, in Britain, which climaxed with the shooting of a policeman in Leeds in 1981, was it? During the minor strike. They shot, the plan was they, they shot this policeman and they were going to blame two of the striking miners. But the, the shooting went ahead, the guy was killed, but the striking, the bit about framing the miners went wrong because the assassin got cold feet about doing the second part. And then he was killed. And this guy who got in touch with me, he was framed and put in prison for eight years. <clears throat> a bit like Collingwood. In this country, if you do something really, which the state really doesn't like, they don't kill you. They cancel you, they, they fuck up your pension or they put you in prison. I mean, Colin Walsh was framed for murder. This guy, Peter Sanderson, was framed for bank robberies he hadn't committed, and he served eight years. Because, like Wallace, neither of them would admit it. They were offered him parole. He would, he would, to get parole, you have to admit, admit you did it. He refused to admit he did it. So he stayed in prison for three years longer than he had to, because he wouldn't admit it. So anyway, yes, there was a strategy of tension in Britain, um, during, and it climaxed and fizzled out during the minor strike. But it was a very modest British kind of thing. They weren't going to shoot lots of people or blow, blow a big bomb up, you know, like in, um, what, was it? what was it, Verona Station? What was the station that they blew Bologna. up? Italy? Bologna. They blew up the Bologna Station and killed, what, 86 people or something? Yeah. Here, they, they were just going to kill one guy, a modest British worker, but with the same idea to smear the left. Absolutely idiotic. I mean, the minor strike was doomed to failure and you would fail as soon as it began. They didn't have, they didn't have the support of the, of the Labour movement because they hadn't had a ballot. They hadn't gone through the procedure. The Labour movement in Britain is proceduralist. If you don't do the procedures, you don't get our support. So the miners were doomed to failure. There was no need for the mine, you know, to run the strategy of tension against the miners. They were doomed, they were gonna lose. Idiotic, idiotic. Anyway, if anyone, is... it's Lobster 81. Lobster 81, that, that's really interesting because I, I actually, for some reason, was not terribly familiar with the 
idea of a British strategy of tension. I'm, I'm surprised I haven't read well, about that. Well, go, back to the, go back to the 70s. You had in, 19, say, 1973, you had MI, a faction of MI5, which was getting information from the CIA, <clears throat> was telling the Conservative Party and the Daily Telegraph, for example, the right wing of the British political, it was telling them that the Russians controlled the Communist Party in Britain, the Communist Party controlled the trade unions, and the trade unions controlled the Labour Party. So the, the Soviets controlled the Labour Party. That was the theory. The Telegraph published this. The, the Daily Telegraph ran this. And a section of people on the right wing of the army, bits of the intelligence services, uh, in, and in the, in the Conservative Party, believed this stuff. And they began a whole series of things, like the so-called private armies episode. Uh, so Walter Walker, excuse me a second, I'm talking, I'm getting dry. Yeah, no problem. It's the private episode. Walter Walker set up a thing called civil assistance, which was a kind of militia, you're all a countrywide militia. David Sterling, who was an excess, the SAS Waller, who was a big hero in World War II, he, he set up a thing called Unison. Was it, was it him who set up Unison? Or was that Walter Walker? I'm, you know, even I'm forgetting the details now. So all this stuff, they're machinating. Everybody's preparing for the great confrontation with the Soviet forces who are running the trade unions. This is an astounding delusion. I mean, an astonishing. Yes, the, the Communist Party of Great Britain had quite heavy influence in half a dozen of the British trade unions. They did. They had delegates on the central committees. It's all been documented. But they had a, that they could control the trade union movements. It's a fantastic delusion. The idea that the British Communist Party wanted a revolution was a fantastic delusion. I mean, I knew these people. My parents had been in the Communist Party. These people weren't revolutionaries. Extraordinary nonsense. And this is all, it's, it's like a large chunk of America on the right believes that the last election was stolen, that Trump was the real president. There's no evidence for this at all, but they believe it anyway. And it's a delusion. And the idea that the British left was on the verge of seizing control of British society and having a revolution in 1974 was an extraordinary delusion. Nonetheless, these people believed it. And they began bugging all the Labour government. When Labour government took over in 74, they began you know, tapping all the phones, going through the dustbins. They were going through Tony Benn's rubbish every week, looking for incriminating evidence that Ben was, you know, this fantastic nonsense. Fantastic nonsense. Yeah, you could easily make like a, Sounds like you could easily make a sort of comedy out of it or a sitcom or something, I guess, you know. It's, it's okay, it's, looking back on it, it is comic. At the time, it was serious because I mean, the British economy, when Labour took over in 1974, inflation was 20% and rising, thanks to Mr Heath. This is a big problem. 25% inflation is a big problem, you know. Yeah. And the unemployment was rising. So, yeah, it was a, it, it looks like it, I mean... It's really funny. It's now looked back. The mid seventies is looked upon as a great crisis in British political life. In a sense, it was. But the surveys show the British were have never been happier than they were in nineteen seventy six, and they, and also Britain was never less was never less unequal. Britain was at its most equal in terms of income distribution in nineteen seventy six, and the British were also at their happiest in nineteen seventy six. But if you listen to the right wing of the British media and the Tory party, we were on the verge of a socialist revolution. Incredible nonsense. And they were fighting. I mean, they were talking about coups. Harold Wilson, you know, was talking about them running a coup against them. And there was there was talk of coups. There was. How serious it was, who knows? And when I what briefly what when I brought what briefly for Channel 4 News trying to research all this stuff on the column, what was the story? I rang some of these guys up, the generals, and of course they wouldn't say anything. Nobody will talk. In this country, nobody talks. They just won't they just won't tell you. So you don't know. 
And then there's no any any evidence. There's no evidence about any of this. The only evidence first time we've got is people like Wallace and this new guy, Peter Sanderson in Scarborough, who talked about the later 70s and the 80s. He talked and Wallace talked and Fred Holroyd talked about Northern Ireland. But apart, there's a handful of whistleblowers otherwise. And the media just basically ignore it. Because so, when... Go on. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. I've I was wondering, um, so in terms of, you know, Colin Wallace, did you feel... So, I mean, for those unfamiliar... Colin Wallace, former, I believe, military intelligence, was he? He was. Um, he was a civil. He was. He was in the. He was officially a press officer in Northern Ireland in the seventies. And when he was recruited, he worked. He worked as an. He worked as a psyops officer, psychological operations. Essentially, he was running. He was the. He was the guy on the ground who you. He, he directed all their psychological operations against the IRA chiefly, and. I mean, in eventually, but the IRA. So he was the man on the ground working for um, what was his what was his bit of the army called? It wasn't called psyops. I had another name. Information policy. He worked for information policy, and they they were telling lies. They were planting lies in newspapers and stuff like that, and producing forgeries. I've got some of the forgeries in my filing cabinet. You know, pamphlets apparently showing Labour MPs at pro IRA meetings, that sort of thing. Just the usual nonsense. Wallace came out and told everybody. And the only person that took him seriously was me. I mean, you know, none of the major media would take, would, would deal with him. They wouldn't take it. They wouldn't take, they wouldn't believe it. When you were working on the Colin Wallace story, did you ever feel a bit intimidated by by anything or anyone or did anything, or was it just you know relatively easy? I lived in I lived in Hull in, in those days in in all in relative poverty with no money. I could afford a phone bill. No, I never got threatened. I never got any nasty phone calls. I assume my phone was tapped. I don't know if it was or not. You, you just assume it is. I assume everything I know, think everything that I, I keyboard on, on, on the computer is going to be public. The internet is public. Uh, Dominic Cummings doesn't seem to understand this, does he? <laughs> if you keyboard it, mate, somebody's going to find it. So I, somehow I knew that from the very first day. So no, it was just like, here's this fantastic story and why won't the media media deal with it? So it's quite a funny one. Steve, Dor Steve Doral and I began working on the Wallace story. I went to see Colin and we had lots and lots of exchanges because he was sending us stuff when he was in prison before he came out. We were getting So he had this huge pile of pain. So I went to see Colin, met Colin, met Fred, met their wives. And uh, so we wrote this, and then we, we started writing this document. It was called Lobster, it was Lobster 11 about Colin Wallace. And in the middle of that, or at the beginning of that, Steve Doral's offered a big check to go and write a book with Anthony Summers. Here, here's 20 grand, come and write a book with me. So Steve Doral, who had, like me, had no money, said, yeah, okay, fine. So I ended up writing the Wallace story. And it was 50 pages. So we published a 50-page, A4, 50 pages, and gave it to the British media, and thinking they would read it. And of course, how little we knew. I gave it, we had a press conference, gave this stuff out. There were some journalists there, handed it out. 50 pages they went, mm, and threw it away. Didn't read it. Nobody took any notice. Nothing happened. The biggest story in our view, we called it, I think we called it the British Watergate. Yeah, we did. The British Watergate. Nobody took any notice. And then Peter Wright came along in Australia began talking about MI5 plotting against Harold Wilson. And these journalists all went, oh, that's interesting. Those guys from up north said something like this. And they all fished in their bins and fished out Lost 11. And I began getting hundreds of phone calls. I spent three years explaining Colin Wallace to the major media. Just all the time, constantly, constantly. 
because they, they rang me up and I would explain to them, which say they're having to do the work. It's a very complicated story. It is, it is, definitely. And reading Paul Foote's book, uh, Framing Colin, Colin Walls, which is an excellent book, excellent book, but, you know, big, big book as well. Like, you know, it's a complex story, a lot of history, uh, but it's it's interesting. And so in terms of, like, you know, um, you ended up on the show After Dark. Is that right? I did After Dark, yeah. I can't remember when that was, 80... I have no idea. I, it's online, apparently. I've, I'd have no desire to see myself again. I have no desire to watch this interview again either. Trust me. You know, so, it's uh, three hours. It's all on YouTube. Three hours. It's all on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> yeah, three hours. It, it was. It was amusing at the time, but it was. A, you know, television is a way. Television is not an information medium. Television is an entertainment medium. You know, people say to me, "Oh, look, watch this thing on YouTube." I always say the same thing. Listen, if I can't read it copy it, paste it, save it. I'm not interested in the information. It's not usable. There's no point in saying, watch this YouTube video, go to 18 minutes and 46 seconds. Yeah, okay. But then I've got to write down what they said at 18 minutes and 46 seconds. I want print. I want print that I can lift and use and reassemble. That's what I do. Have you ever been interested in maybe say video editing, like editing segments so you can put together a nice little piece and no? No. A, 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 I haven't got the, te- I haven't got the, I haven't got the, the knowledge, and it would, at my age, it would take me a long time to acquire, because I mean I'm 75, and you don't learn things quickly at this age, alas. And no, it never interested me, and I have no desire to put a video on YouTube, and even if it got a million views, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather write a decent 500 words, you know, a literate 500 words, properly documented. That's what, that's what I do. I write, I write, assemble, edit. Proofread. I don't want to make videos now. Doesn't interest me. You can't. Okay. You can't. Do, you can't do this stuff on, on film. Not really. You can show Colin Wallace. I mean, there's some. There's a decent video on Colin Wallace on YouTube, called I forgot what it's called. I appeared in it briefly, rambling away as usual, like this same rambling nonsense. And but it's quite a nice video. But I'd rather read. You know, I'd rather read it, read it than watch it. And that, which sure. is just my, it's just my age and where I came from. Yeah, young people under thirty wouldn't think like this. Most of them. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's interesting. I mean, certainly, it's been around for a long time. The whole art of writing, and you know, before we touch on that briefly about kind of the art of writing, what exactly, like when you heard, you know, I mean, again, maybe difficult to remember. And I know you mentioned like you know it was amusing that kind of thing for you, but were you excited like at all when you heard you were going to be on this like you know quite well known talk show after dark like you know with political figures and you know intelligence officers and former intelligence officers? No, one former intelligence officer was I excited? Um, I can't remember. I think I'd been on TV already. I think I'd been interviewed by various odds and ends beforehand, so it wasn't that big a deal. It was quite an interesting experience. Um, so yeah, it was quite amusing. It was quite interesting. But that's all I would say. And I came back and and for about they had one interesting side effect. I was then in the Labour Party, and nobody in my local branch took any notice of what I did at all. And but then for about six months after I'd been on television, oh, they began listening to me, and it wore off quite quickly. But for about six months, they thought, oh, he must be serious that he's on television. <laughs> that's the. Uh... Strange power of television, and then sometimes <laughs> it can just wear off. Well, in those days, there were only five channels, weren't there? Yeah, five, or maybe only, maybe only been four. 
and Sky, of course, but on the on the non-paying, I think there are only five channels. So after that, was watched probably watched by about a million people, you know, which is a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, most would be half pissed, of course, at midnight on a Friday night, you know, <laughs> back from the pub. What are we going to do? Get a curry and put the telly on. What have we got after dark? Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's um, it's strange because the stuff they talked about on that show was pretty serious, like, but it was amusing in a, in a good way. Like, I mean, it was, you know, it was an informal environment, but the stuff they were talking about was pretty serious. Like, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, you watched, I haven't watched it. I don't remember what I, I don't remember what was on it. Oh, I remember getting the last word in. I remember the guy tried to end it and I, right at the end I said, hang on a minute. And I summarized and I said, the cover up's in place. There won't be it. Nothing's going to happen. And I was wrong. Wallace got eventually got his name cleared. He was acquitted, had his charges dismissed, and all the rest of it. And he won, and he did that largely. I suspect he succeeded largely because of Tam Dial. Tam Dial MP was a friend of um, Michael Quinlan. Michael Quinlan was the number one civil service in the MOD. I think I think they played squash together. And Tam Dial kept nagging him, "Why are you persecuting Wallace? Why don't you? You know why? 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 Why?" And eventually they gave in. They gave in. Why bother? And they gave up. And it was so long ago, it didn't matter. That's the point in Britain. That's what happens in Britain. I mean, the stuff about the nineteen eight, the murder of Sergeant Speed in Leeds in 1982. 82? Yes, it was 82. Eventually, when that's far enough away, probably quite soon, they'll they'll tell the truth. You know, when it doesn't, when it when it has no impact politically. Now, by the time Wallace was acquitted in the 90s, it was so long ago, nobody cared. It didn't matter. Nobody's career was at stake. Nobody was going to lose, you know, their promotion because they because they'd fucked it up in the seventies. It didn't matter anymore. They were all well retired now, and, that, and that's how it works in Britain. You won't get anything done now. I mean, it's like COVID. Nothing will happen on COVID, but thirty years time, maybe something will happen. Interesting, interesting. So, in terms of like, you know, on a <laughs> on a slightly lighter note. Slightly lighter note. Um, kind of writing and journalism, you prefer print to video, as you mentioned. Would you say that there's a good kind of blend that you can have of, say, the arts, broadly speaking, which, you know, very broad term, but it can refer to writing and, a, you know, journalism and creative writing. And you can blend it with essentially true crime. So the arts and true crime and all related things, which, you know, they can blend quite well in investigative journalism because uh, this podcast is sort of about, you know, the blending of true crime and um, arts, the arts that's commendable commotion in general. So what's your thoughts on that idea of like the blending of like, broadly speaking, the arts and writing and creative journalism and then true crime, which some people look up in a very scientific, very sort of technical way sometimes, but not always. In fact, most of the time, maybe not. But what are your thoughts well, of blending those two? Well, I'm not sure that I have any thoughts. My problem is I'm not, I don't, I've, I've got upstairs, there's a room upstairs full of books. So I've got a thousand crime novels, probably. They're almost virtually all American. I've been reading, obsessively reading American crime novels since the late 70s. And I've read every, virtually everybody. And I love American crime. And we're, leading, we're living through the golden age of American crime writing and British crime writing for that matter too. My charity, local charity shop, is full of crime novels. Everybody's reading and buying crime novels. But true crime doesn't interest me at all. It, it, political crime interests me, but true crime like murders, I don't care. I'm not interested. It doesn't ring my bell at all. It's Essentially, it's 
it's small scale piffle. You know, somebody gets killed. It's a big deal for friends, family and neighbors. But for the rest of us, you know, they could have been run over by a bus. Who would care? So no, true crime doesn't interest me. So I don't, if this was the point of, of having me on to talk about true crime, I really don't have any ideas at all. Oh, no, 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 don't worry. No, I only meant just that it's sometimes interesting how with maybe studies of, you know, intelligence agencies, things like mm. that, and parapolitical studies, often you get, you know, what can be criminal stories and any sort of tangent. Oh, yeah, massive, massive criminal story, huge, elaborate criminal story, sure. Or parapolitics, most parapolitics is based on illegality at one level or another. You know, the, just from the, the boring stuff like tabby people's phones breaking and stealing things and all the rest of it. You're right through to you know knocking bumping people off. You sure? Parapolitics is about is about state crime. That's the point. I'm interested in the behaviour of states and I guess corporations, but basically states because in theory we live in democracy and this shouldn't be happening. That's the central problem of Britain. This stuff does happen, and the politicians don't want to know about it. They're not interested, and they're not interested because it's too complicated. I can remember trying to get the light off my glasses. Doesn't matter. I can, yeah. for example, I mean, we had all the stuff about Wallace and about the Labour Party and Harold Wilson and this operation and that operation. We had a huge pile of stuff, which we I kept pushing it to the towards the Labour Party leadership. I was a member of the Labour Party. I assumed, in my innocence, I assumed they'd be interested. Nobody wanted to know. You know why? Too complicated. They're too busy. They've got too much to read, and you know, and it's dangerous because you might you might ir you might irritate MI5, and who knows what MI5 would do to you? You could kill your career. You know, you could, you could, so the only person that ever took it, there were two people, three that took it semi-seriously. One was Ken Livingston, um, um, and the other was Tam Dial, and the third was, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I've forgotten the third guy's name. Donald, Duncan, anyway, there were three of them took it semi-seriously and would do ask questions in the comments. But for example, Ken Livingston asked a lot of questions in the comments in 88, 89, but the questions were actually being asked by his researcher, a man called Neil Grant. And Neil Grant was a, a school teacher, but also working for Ken. And Neil, Colin Wallace and I would feed, feed Neil Grant material and he, Ken would write questions and ask the comments. The questions were mostly ignored or given very bland responses. Then Neil Grant quit. And of course, Ken never asked another question. He wasn't doing it. Neil Grant was doing it. And Tam Dial was an eccentric, I mean, a seriously eccentric uh, guy. So you could never get, you could never rely on Tam Dial doing anything he didn't want to do. It's a nice story. I met Tam Dial for the first time in Outer Commons. I meet Tam. Hello, Robin. This is Robin Ramsey. Hello, Tam Dial. How'd you? Nice to meet you. And he put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a handful of really tired looking lettuce and said, Would you like some lettuce? <laughs> You know, and I went, oh, no, no thanks, Tam. But you think, what? You know, who are these people? Lettuce? Who carries lettuce in a pocket? For one thing, who puts lettuce in your pocket? That's, uh, <laughs> you had some. Would you offer it to a stranger? Sounds like uh, eccentricity of the highest order. Uh... Eccentricity of the highest. Someday I was an eccentric of the highest order. But here's the thing. How, how would you, like, you know... For aspiring writers, aspiring journalists who are interested in writing about power politics, researching power politics, even just explaining power politics in another medium, such as film, which I know you may be less yeah. fond of, I understand. How would you, or let's say sticking it, or, you know, keeping to the idea of writing, keeping it in print and writing about power politics, 
what would you recommend to people who want to do that to try and make it as least complex as possible explaining these complex concepts to the public like how would you recommend doing that well you won't explain it to the public the public will never get this they will never be interested in this it, it doesn't inter people aren't interested in politics you know people don't care about politics most people i know don't care about politics so forget the public i remember years and years and years ago i got rung up by a guy in glasgow this is back in the 90s i think and he rang me up and he said we wanted to talk about setting up a radical magazine in glasgow what should he do i said well look what you've got to do is produce something that you would like to read and forget the public why he said i said because the public will never read it they will never buy it i mean i'd produce at that point i'd been doing lobster for I don't know, 15 20 years and a thousand people thought it was worth buying you know that's all a thousand so I said to the guy, people, people used to think, I set up a radical magazine forward with a revolution. You know, this will forward the, work, the worker struggle or whatever. And it isn't true. It won't happen. The, the public aren't interested. And even if they were, it, this stuff is very, very complicated. Even explaining a very small event in, in big detail is very complicated stuff. So you've got to accept that your peer group People are going to read you as it's a very small group of people and they're all going to be as probably as weird as you are. <laughs> Me personally, <laughs> I hope not. But anyway, the, uh... point. there's no point. In, there's no point in saying I'm going to write a book about the Kennedy assassination, which will be read by millions of people, because if you write it in anything resembling enough detail to make you a case, it'll be too complex for people. They won't be interested in that level of detail. But you could write a book saying, you know, Kennedy was shot by, you know, this one theory, Kennedy was shot by one of the guards in the limousine, stood up with his rifle and accidentally shot him in the head. You know, and that made the Daily Mail and it made a film and it made a book, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, never a particularly good uh, situation when oversimplification may make something interesting to the masses, as it were. But do you have any advice? You used the masses, not me, Paul. You used it first. Okay, the okay. No, the the yeah. people, the, the public, the public. The pub I'm not, you know, sort of trying to knock the, the public or anything. But let's say, how would you, like, is there anything at all from your many years of writing that you would recommend just, you know, to try and, you know, because you write very interesting stuff. I really do think so. How would you, what would you say to people who want to present a, sort of complex concepts in the parapolitical realm, how would you recommend making it as interesting as is possible for them? Because it may be too difficult for a lot of people sometimes to read about these topics, no matter who's writing them. But what would you recommend to just try and hook the audience, as it were? Anything at all? No, I, I literally have no idea. The only advice I would give anybody starting out in the modern world is be very careful about the sources that you trust because there's an extraordinary number of totally unreliable sources out there. And the problem with the internet was once upon a time, if you were a newspaper, it looked like a newspaper. If you were a little magazine produced in Hull, it looked like a little magazine produced in Hull. These days, inter internet websites, they all look the same. So you know, here's, a here's, here's a newspaper website and here's a nonsense website and they look exactly the same. And coming to it, you couldn't tell. There are no clues about the status of, what, of the content from the way it looks. There are some totally nonsensical websites that look fantastic. That's the big problem, I think, nowadays. You, how do you distinguish the, 
well, to use a moment, how do you distinguish the shit from the shinola? And, and, and it's difficult these days. It is difficult. I've been doing it a long time, so I don't have a problem at all. I can tell within 10 seconds I'm looking at a website just by who they're quoting. Nonsense. Could it be nonsense or not? I can still discriminate. But if I was 30, I'll bet I couldn't. I bet I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, it's such a wilderness of mirrors to use a very, very famous phrase. Yeah, famous phrase. Angleton. Uh, Have you read about... Yeah, yeah, have you... I presume you've read quite a bit about Angleton, written about him. I have. He's the man that told MI. He's the man that told MI five in the nineteen seventies that the commies, the commies, were running the Labour Party. It all came from him. And in those days, if you were in the MI five, some of MI five, if you were in the anti-communist wing of MI five, and Angleton told that Angleton was God. He was the CIA. You know, he had fifty times your budget. He had a thousand times more sources. You, you didn't disbelieve Angleton. So Angleton says Wilson's a commie being run by Moscow. You believed him. That's why they believed it. Yeah, because he had quite a role in Italy during the whole sort of, you know, parapolitical stuff that went on there. They mentioned, you know, the Italian strategy of tension. Yeah. And there's another quote from him. Uh, I can't remember the context. It was like, you know, even a paranoiac has enemies. Was the, <laughs> what, he, what he said. So I haven't shows. heard that one. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's another, there's another good one about that, which I think, I can't remember who coined this one. It's, you know, like, yes, I'm paranoid, but am I paranoid enough? Which right. Which would suit yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, it's um because I mean Angleton destroyed a big chunk of the CIA. He paralyzed the CIA because he believed that there was there were Soviet moles, the KGB moles in the CIA, and he began this obsessive search for the moles. And the CIA basically ground to a halt, you know, because he was borrowing here and borrowing there, and the whole thing just came to a stop because they couldn't work with Angleton. Eventually, they got rid of him, and thing went by things went back to normal. And were there any Soviet moles? Not really. Not really. <laughs> wow, that's, one uh... or two little one, one or two little ones, but forgive me. Um, I suspect by the late nineteen seventies, the intelligence agencies, the bright people in intelligence agencies, took the view: the more they know, the more we know about each other, the better. Since we've got nuclear fucking weapons, the, we don't want anything to go off by mistake, you know. So I, now, of course, with the internet, everybody knows pretty much everything about everybody now. I suspect. Um, I mean, we know a great deal. We could find out a great deal about China just rummaging around on the internet. Goodness knows what the CIA China desk has, has got sources they've got, for example. They must know where every Chinese missile station, I would guess, from their satellites. Yeah. 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 Now, actually, um, something that I was going to bring up earlier, but I forgot, but this was very interesting as well. One of your readers, um, you know, back in the day and probably still, was a man named Anthony Freewin. And for those unfamiliar, Anthony Freewin was a longtime assistant to the great Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Uh, did you remember talking to Anthony Freewin back in the day and chatting with him and stuff? He was one. We talked. Anthony Freewin, pronounced Freewin. Freewin. Yeah. Anthony Freewin. He was one of my. He was one of the when I first produced Lobster. It, some copies ended up in a thing called the Alternative Bookshop in London, which was a right-wing libertarian, a right-wing anarchist bookshop. And some copies ended up in there. I think they took six or a dozen. And Fruin bought one. And he discovered, as he said to me later, I thought I was the only person interested in this stuff. And there we were. And Fruin worked for Stanley Kubrick. Um, and because of he, because he had an office and he had a free phone, and Fruin would ring me up. And we would talk for hours. And we'd talk for hours every, probably every day for years. We'd have long, elaborate chats about what we would, what we were reading, and all the rest of it. So, Fruin was a very important 
a very important uh, part of all this in some ways. Yes, he was. And he's written occasionally, he wrote some stuff for Love. He's written the odd bits and pieces for Love. But now he's a film, now he writes film scripts. You know, he's a big cheese. So I, what exactly was, um, like, did, did you ever uh, talk to Stanley Kubrick himself? No, nope. never met Kubrick. My big regret was that Fruin never introduced me to Kubrick. Well, <laughs> that's uh, that's a pity, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. With with Anthony Fruin, um, when was the last time you is? I mean, does he still contribute to Lobster or? Occasionally, we talked. We had we had a chat last week. Um, he's busy. I'm busy. Um, we're getting old, getting slow. Yeah, we still chat, but not in the way we used to. No, no, not in the way we used to. But it, 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 the way we used to, I was forty years ago. I was. We were in our thirties. You know, as you get older, things get slower and more difficult. So no. He's not doing any serious research anymore, but he still reads everything. He's an amazing reader. He reads books. He reads books. He reads things. And he's got a bit of money, I guess, and he can afford to seize it. He just buys it. Oh, have that on Amazon. Get it delivered and all the rest of it. But yeah, he hasn't written anything for me for, I can't remember when he last wrote, a couple of years ago, I guess. He writes the odd book review. Good, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's been so interesting talking to him. I mean, um, certainly in documentaries, I've watched about Kubrick. You know, uh, Furman's in quite a few of them. He seems like a really interesting guy. So he is. He's a very interesting. He's a very nice guy. Yeah, Tony. He used to be Tony, and now he's Anthony. By the way, right? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> my middle name. But anyway, the um, yeah, uh, my middle name coincidentally. But anyway, the uh, Tony. Anthony, but you know the uh, it's an old little classical thing. But anyway, the um, so like where where do you go from here? Like, what particular topics would you like to explore more in the future for Lobster? Uh, any in particular oh, you really are eager to write about? I mean, you've written a lot already, the, obviously, but anything else? Well, the range of things that Lobster's covered is vast. Now, the range of things that I've covered is pretty big, and none of it is none of it's being resolved. None of the big stories have been settled. I mean, for example, I mean, I wrote quite a lot in, in, in the 90s. I wrote quite a lot about mind control because I met an, an American guy came to see me and told me this story. A man called Harlan Gerard. He's now dead. He rang me up and said, uh, can I come and see you? I said, yeah, sure, come to home. And Harlan Gerard, he was a middle-class, prosperous American, white American. He'd been going around the media in London trying to get them to, to take an interest in the CIA and mind control. He claimed he was a CIA mind control victim. And they all kept saying, no, 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 go and see them, go and see them. And eventually somebody said, no. And it, it, it spirals down and right at the bottom of the pile, the media pile, is Lobster. Why don't you ring Lobster? So he rings Lobster. I say, well, yeah, come to Hull. That was always my thing. Come to Hull. It put most people off. But he did. He turned up. It was <laughs> two, very, two very expensive leather suitcases and his hands in shreds carrying the bloody thing and they were full of photocopies about microwaves and what microwaves might do and mind control experiments and all the rest of it and you know and he told me this story about you know the CIA were monitoring him and talking to him he had somebody in his ear all day long telling him what to say what to think and I said you know is that is it are they doing it now yes they are so I thought well this is probably crazy on the other hand I'd read just enough about the CIA to know they had been interested in mind control in the 60s. They'd been doing experiments in the 50s and 60s. So I said, I said, well, I don't know how, and I don't know what to say. And he anyway left me a copy of all these. And I've got a, I've got a file drawer there, a whole file drawer of documents on mind control. 
on, on microwaves, none of which I could, which ultimately I have uh, totally unresolved. I simply don't, I still don't know whether he was telling me the truth. And there were other people in Britain said the same thing. I once had a meeting with four of them. These are intelligent, middle-aged, one American, three Brits. And I said to them, how many of you are being beamed at now? And two of them put their hands up. And these were all, if you'd met them, you would say rational, sensible people. Two of the all, but they all, they all, claimed that they were being beamed at by people in the CIA talking to them. So what do you do with that? I've, I've tried to make sense of it. Uh, other people have written about it. So for example, that subject isn't, isn't, clear, isn't clear at all, but I never resolved it. It's impossible to resolve. I simply don't know. Would the CIA try and do this? Of course they would. Somebody famously said, if you can imagine it, it's been tried already. That's often true but you know again about some things who knows who knows it's just you know well put it this way these large agencies employing thousands of people on high salaries whose job it is to think about you know how can we do this how can we do that what can we do next if if i joe blow on the street can imagine it they've tried it already so do i think the cia have tried microwave experiments probably do i know that harlan gerard was being beamed at by the cia when he was in my room in hull i have no idea how, if technically, even if that was physically possible, how would they do it? Using a satellite? I don't know. I have no idea. No idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, but, but you, that's... you began by saying, you know, what would I do? The point is, all of these things, I may come across something on the internet which bumps me off into mind control again. I haven't done anything on mind control for a long time because I'm no longer looking at it. I'm chiefly, chiefly interested in, at the moment, personally, chiefly interested in the economic crash that's going to happen and knock Britain down flat on it. Well, Britain is now about 25th. We're about the 25th richest country in the world. People people keep saying, oh, we're the fifth richest. No, we aren't. We're 25th Britain. And it's getting worse. We're getting poorer. The poor in Britain are now desperately poor. And there's a quarter of the British population who are living on, who are living below the official poverty level. Nobody talks about this. It's politically embarrassing. And nobody knows what to do about it. Thanks to Mrs. Thatcher and Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, they knocked they knocked out a third of British manufacturing. British manufacturing base was just ignored for forty years, virtually. So we're in the shit for economically, and it's only going to get worse. That strikes me as the most important thing I can do at the moment. That's what interests me most. But and I'm reading about the Kennedy assassination on the site. Chiefly, I'm trying to think about ways what on earth one can do about the the coming crisis, and it might be happening. I mean, there's a huge there's a big problem coming with derivatives again. Derivatives is a huge derivatives mountain that could crash any second. Just we could have 2008 again. Could be any minute now. If you believe what you read on the internet, it is going to be any minute now. And the whole the whole problem, all those problems about democracies and financial forces and big corporations, how do you control them? Nobody knows. Nobody's tried. I certainly would not know. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, you you would know more than me, though. I mean, seriously, like I, it's just such a complex topic. Finance, well, you know, high finance. That, that's why there's economics in lobster, which I didn't used to. Be. I began writing this economic stuff in the in the late eighties. I began because it's not really lobster's subject. But then lobster's basically just me and a few people that write and edit and do editing and things. So. Fuck it. Whatever I'm interested in is what's going in lobster. And that's it. There's quite a lot of economic stuff being in recently. Well, political economy, not really economics, but the politics of economics. We're going to get a government, Labour government's going to have them arrive in next year 
And we've got Keir Starmer, who knows nothing about economics, and uh, Rachel Reeves, who was trained by the Bank of England. How good is that going to be? Well, on that... Uh... <laughs> how, orthodox, how orthodox is that going to be? What's that? I said, how orthodox is that going to be? A Bank yeah. of England, England trained economist is going to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Well, on that, if, uh, you were, if you were poor, if you were living on an estate in Holland, you were living on uh, family. What's it called? Income. income what's what's it called? <coughs> income support. If you were living, I wouldn't get your hopes up. I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, it's sad, but you know, I think it's just you know good that you're interested in writing about economics and you know things that I uh, would never be able to understand particularly well, and many other people as well. So uh, you know, it's uh, on that. It's not that Honest to God, it's not that difficult. It's presented very difficultly as very difficult, but it's terribly simple, really. Oh, gee, interest rates are going up. Who's going to benefit from that? The people that lend you money are going to benefit from that. We start there. Why are interest rates going up? Oh, well, it's to control inflation. Yeah, but it also makes the people that lend you money rich. And that's the, da that's the danger. And so tiptoeing down this narrow line, trying to stay rational while dealing with all this extremely emotive, emotive stuff is one of the tricks, one of the tricks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, and that, that is a good tip about, you know, just for aspiring writers, aspiring journalists, you know, just keeping the balance right, like between... No, there are, no, there are hardly any journalists left. Don't, nobody, want, nobody would be advised to go and do journalism training because there's hardly any journalists left. They're mostly working in PR these days. But the great thing about the internet is if you, want, if you just want to write... You can, getting published isn't difficult. You can, for Christ's sake, you can start your own website if you have to. I mean, when I was starting in the late, in the late middle 1970s, late 1970s, getting published was very, very difficult. You know, there were very few outlets who would touch you. And, uh, you know, they were, they were either big newspapers who wouldn't touch you because you weren't on their staff and they took hardly any freelancers, or they were lefty, lefty magazines who had lines you had to follow. You know, I, yeah, I think the Socialist Workers' Party had a paper then. I think it was called, was it called Workers Press? No, that was a WRP. There were, there were little lefty magazines, but you could only write for them in a particular way. So it was very difficult to write. Very difficult to get, sorry, very difficult to get published. These days, getting published is easy. You can publish yourself on the internet, nothing to it. Write your own book. Amazon will publish a quite a good, decent looking book if you've got the money. And some of those Amazon books, I've got a couple up there I can see from here, they're quite good books, you know. But the internet's well, changed. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting the democratization of uh, writing, of you know the open. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. Well, where can people find you? So, Lobster Magazine. What's the just best Google, way? Lo just Google Lobster Magazine, you'll find it. Lobster Magazine, and you're on Twitter or X, as it's now called. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, but one of the guys, one of my colleagues, is on Twitter. G Garrick Alder, he writes on Twitter. I don't even read Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It's I, become a bit I can't of a... Weapons of mass destruction again. I really can't be bothered with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I would not disagree. Uh, well, th thank you, sir, for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been interesting. Uh, really interesting. No, I, no, it was, I'm glad you found it interesting. I've got no idea how it will appear to people. I really don't know. But... Well, that's the fun of it. That's Look the at, fun of it, you know? Never mind, never mind the nonsense that I'm talking. Look at the stuff that's been published by Lobster. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff up there. Lobster Magazine. Cool. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, sir, and uh, have a great day. You too. You too. Nice to meet you. Cheers.